I love playing the game of disc golf. What I hate is waking up the next day, feeling that soreness in my muscles, in my body, my arms, my shoulders, my legs. And what I typically do is I wake up, I hammer down a few ibuprofen or Tylenol, and I go ahead and move on with my day. What I didn't realize was how bad that was for my body as well. Throwing a disc is very strenuous on your body, whether you realize it or not. What it does is it causes micro tears in muscles, which then become inflamed, and that's where any post-workout or post-round soreness comes from. That's why you need to check out our friends at Wonderkind. Wonderkind with a U. All natural CBD products. They're located right here in the United States, and they're always shipping for free. All of their products are 100% legal in all 50 states, lab tested to make sure that you're getting the highest quality CBD product to help you recover from your round out on the course. The CBD products all have an anti-inflammatory property, which is amazing for muscle recovery and pain reduction after a round. Guys, check out Wonderkind. Again, that's W-U-N-D-E-R-K-I-N-D. You can follow them on Instagram at Wonderkind Extracts, and you can visit their website at wonderkindextracts.com and select from any of their amazing CBD products and use code RUNIT15 at checkout to save 15% off. Again, that's RUNIT15 at wonderkindextracts.com. Tired of putting down those ibuprofen and those Tylenol, eating up your stomach and attacking your liver? Well, give an all-natural CBD product a shot and see how much better you feel after your round. Again, that's wonderkindextracts.com, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. This is Ricky Wysocki, and you're listening to Running It with Nate Sexton. Running It with Nate Sexton is brought to you in part by Innova Champion Discs. Proud sponsor of 12-time Open World Champion, Ken the Champ Climo. Hello, disc golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is the Innova Team Captain and our host... Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? Oh, I'm great. I uh, had a long night driving last night, getting back from Bend, Oregon, where I was there doing the uh, the DGN, Disc Golf Network commentary for the Jonesboro Open, watching Ricky Wysocki just go crazy again. I mean, that guy's on another level right now. It was fun to see. I like to think that him coming on and just kind of talking with us and going over his game plan and just kind of really letting a load off, I think we were a big part in his win in Jonesboro. Yeah, I think our case would be stronger if he hadn't just been crushing everything before he came on the show also. But, you know, I, I think we can, you know, we can run with that a little bit. We can try to say have, say that you get a little bump after you come on the show. I mean, he did he did lead the field in birdies and get no bogeys. So if my math is correct, you cannot lose if you do that. So uh, hats off to Ricky. Incredible. Yeah, and uh, and what more can you ask for than that that final card, that final lead card going into the last day? I mean, you know, Paul, Ricky, Calvin, and Eagle. I mean, is there just four? I don't know if there's any four other guys you'd rather be watching. I, I mean, I know you would rather be in there, but from a spectator's <laughs> point of view, if it's not going to be you, those are the four guys, right? 
Yeah, we've been jokingly calling them, you know, that's those 1050 boys. And, uh, and you know, it's not an accident. Those guys have been uh, setting the pace out there this season uh, with just kind of mind-bogglingly good play. All right, Nate. Now, before we get to this amazing interview with the champ today, we got to pay a few bills. And you guys already know I'm talking about our friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com. Check out FisherDiscGolf.com, guys. They're really loading up on these discs, including Nate. They just did a few uh, custom stamp discs for Fisher team player uh, Clint Calvin. And uh, much like, you know, the bigger manufacturers are doing, the sales of these discs go to helping Clint while he's out on tour. Um, I know they've got them done on a couple of different molds. Check out FisherDiscGolf.com and pick up that new Clint Calvin stamp. Um, They're loading up on some Innovas. Uh, I know that he's looking to get some Nate Sexton X cows in. So all of our listeners can pick those up, um, but make sure you're checking them out. They did start their disc stacks uh, an hour earlier. So it's at seven o'clock now that's on Tuesdays and Fridays. You can check them out on any form of social media at Fisher disc golf. Um, and these are guys that are just really doing the right things. Uh, they're spending a lot of money. I just saw they were doing a cleanup crew uh, over at their local course, Um, So we're all disc golf fans. Let's support other disc golf fans, especially those who are helping support this show so we can bring it to you for free. FisherDiscGolf.com. Check them out. And Nate, for listening to this show, everybody can save a little bit of money, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can use our code RUNIT10 to save 10%. It's always free shipping, so it's awesome. I mean, Clint Calvin got to shout him out. He just got a nice little win uh, last weekend, won a big B tier in Santa Barbara. So the guy can play, 1031 rated. Definitely look him up. Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, we're hoping to have him come chat with us for a few minutes one day. I know uh, Levi and the Fisher team is trying to get that set up for us. So, um, yeah, check out those discs. And again, guys, you get yourself some awesome new plastic, and you're helping getting a pro who's uh, who's rolling. You heard what Ricky said. He was sleeping in his car and eating from the dollar menu. So, uh, you know, get over to FisherDiscOff.com <laughs> and help these help these pros that are trying to come up and get to Rick level. Um, Now, Nate, another amazing sponsor. We started talking about him a little bit last week, and uh, and that's your boy Garrett Gerthy and Double G Craft Jerky. Uh, I just got my order, another order in yesterday. Um, I had to order more because my kids keep munching this stuff down. Uh, This Double G Craft Jerky, guys, like we were talking about the, the Clint Calvin disc, this is an opportunity to help support a guy that's out on tour. He loves cooking. He talked about his passion here uh, for cooking when he was on our episode. Uh, they're using top ingredients. They're using actual brisket to make this jerky. And I think that's one of the reasons why it tastes so good. It's not so hard to chew on. Um, it's really just a solid product coming from a solid guy out on tour, uh, a friend and a teammate of Nate's. He's donating money. He's doing all sorts of things with this. And on top of it, you get an awesome snack. It's Double G Craft Jerky. I'm sure you guys have already heard about it. Go ahead and visit the website, doublegcraftjerky.com. Find Garrett or Double G Craft Jerky on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Follow them. I know they've got some new announcements coming up on some new flavors, but for right now, they've got some amazing flavors. And uh, Nate, I know you loved your Double G Jerky. Plus, Garrett's a friend of yours, man. Yeah, and here's a little pro tip. The jerky is so good that you're going to eat it faster than you wish you had. Go for that hot boom sauce. If you can handle the heat, it'll slow you down a little, and you get to enjoy the jerky a little longer. I've learned that much in my time with Double G Craft Jerky. 
that's a solid tip right there. And, uh, and, and the hot bloom sauce, it's not, it's not terrible guys, but it definitely has some kick to it and it'll, it'll keep your hand out of the bag several times. You'll, you, you might get one of those real spicy ones and kind of learn your lesson. So, um, <laughs> solid, solid pro tip, but guys, again, um, you know, these, these companies are helping support the show so we can bring you interviews like Ken Climo for free. Uh, and the way that you can help support the show is by supporting the sponsors. Check out Double G Craft Jerky and uh, and get yourself a little snack. Throw it in your golf bag. Take it out there for a round. Share it. It's just uh, it's an awesome way to help out a, a great pro who's uh, who's helping get some uh, PDGA Junior memberships bought um, with the Children's Foundation. Just really some awesome things going on. And we appreciate Garrett and his crew uh, for showing some support in the show. And in return, we hope you guys will show them some support as well. Also, completely unrelated to jerky, but get on there and look at Garrett Gerthy's YouTube channel. He's got hooked up with this drone, like, racer with the video drone that follows his crushed disc golf shots. And it is some of the most amazing video I've ever seen. So get on YouTube and check that out. I never know what I'm more impressed with. Am I more impressed with the crush that Double G threw or the fact that that drone pilot can stay right on top of it? It's, I mean, uh, you don't need to choose. You just need to sit back and, and be <laughs> and be let it wash over you. Just be impressed by both. It's incredible. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. So uh, Nate's right. If you haven't seen those, check those out and uh, and pick yourself up some jerky and, and help Garrett and, and get himself rolling with his uh, with his jerky business and get a tasty snack for yourself. Everyone enjoys one. Well, Nate, I'm a huge fan of all professional sports. And inside my circle with my friends and other sports fans, there's always the debate of who is the GOAT. And in hockey, a lot of people think it's Wayne Gretzky. I think it's Bobby Orr. In basketball, a lot of people think that it's Michael Jordan. I think it's Oscar Robertson. In disc golf, I don't think there's any, there's any question. Who are we running it with today, Nate? Well... We got that goat, I think, and and I want the listeners to sit down because this this intro I have to give the man his due, and this intro takes a little bit to kind of get out get out there. So today we've got the twelve time world champion, the five time U.S. champion, the three time Masters world champion, the three time Japan Open champion, the European Open champion, the seven time PDGA Player of the Year. Which how is it only seven? Obviously, Disc Golf Hall of Fame inductee. We've got Ken, the champ, Climo. Hey, guys. How's it going tonight? Oh, man. Better now. I'm so, so happy that uh, you were able to take some time out of your day to join the show. We've been kind of trying to tell some history stories in disc golf, talk to the big players today. Obviously, you're the number one guy we have to talk to to be able to tell the story of this sport. So I'm so, so happy uh, that you agreed to come on the show and, and can't wait to talk to you about some of your career. That sounds great. It sounds like it's going to be an interesting little evening here, and I uh, can't wait to get it started. Sweet, man. Well, first thing, first things first, you know, how, how are you and the family doing? You're in Florida, and I know you got, you know, your whole family there with you. How's everybody? Oh, we're all doing good. Uh, got the 18-year-old is just out of high school, started her first few semesters of college. She's doing good. And the nine-year-old little one is uh, online school still. Haven't sent her back yet because of the COVID thing. I think next year she's going to go back and uh, – Kelly's getting raises left and right at her job, and everybody's doing really well here. Awesome, man. That's good to hear. I, I know the feeling. My daughter is still yet to go back. We're kind of waiting for that to all come around and kind of life hopefully return to normal a little bit. But 
Let's get let's start at the beginning. So, I, you know, when I do this show, I kind of take an hour and kind of stalk your PDGA history. Some of the bigger name players like you got a Wikipedia page I can dig into, make sure I get my facts straight. So if Wikipedia is to be believed, you're born in 1968, Clearwater, Florida, which continues to be your home. I would just like to hear a little bit about your life growing up and maybe your earliest memory of throwing discs. All right. Before I touch on that, I also have to shout out to my son, Keegan, who turns 27 tomorrow. Oh, legit. Yeah. Happy birthday, Keegan. <laughs> Happy birthday, Keegan. Um, so I start. Yeah. Lived my whole life in Clearwater, Florida. You know, I've also obviously traveled around the world and been a bunch of places, but I've never left here as a place for a permanent residence. Love it here. It's a great place to live. Great place to grow up. Uh, my dad was into sports and, you know, kind of got me into that general mode when I was young. I played uh, Little League Baseball from the age of seven to like 15 years old. Played uh, volleyball for my middle school team. I ran track. I did long distance running races. I ran I raced BMX bicycles when I was younger. Played a little peewee football. Um Played my high school golf team. Love the game of golf. Always love golf. And I think that's why I transitioned so nicely into disc golf because I had a love for the game already. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And and how old were you when you kind of got that first disc and, and how did that happen? Well, playing golf for the high school team, you get to play free golf, you know, practicing for the team. You don't have to pay anything. And then once I got out of high school, I didn't have free golf anymore. <laughs> kind of, you know, it kind of hurt. I was like, dang, I got to pay for this stuff. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, uh, kind of that's about the same time, uh, some friend or brother or someone mentioned to me that there was a disc golf course at this park, this local park up here that we frequented now and then. And, uh, first time I went up there, tried to check it out. I really didn't see anything uh, <laughs> looking around. <laughs> I'm not, not sure what I'm looking for. And just, there wasn't much to be seen and I just kind of wrote it off as I guess there's not, it's not here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then I went back with someone who was a little more knowledgeable and there were these wooden posts in the ground. Okay. And they had a red paint on them kind of where the chains would be. And you were supposed to hit them in the red painted area. And if you didn't know they were there, you would never see them. Okay. Like a, like a running stretching course kind of thing, you know, like yeah. exercise course. And uh, so there was really no numbers on them or anything. It was really rudimentary. It was, very, very uh, small time at that point. And so, you know, my buddy had a, a disc or two, and we, we got to throwing around. And I had thrown a bunch of Frisbee Frisbee, like beach Frisbees and stuff in my day. So I, I kind of was already into throwing those things and had a good throwing motion, probably threw 500,000 Frisbee throws before I were sure, uh, tried disc golf. I guess, so, yeah, living that beach life down there in yeah, Florida. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was really into the Frisbee and doing a little freestyle. And our game was to back each other up, you know. I'm going to back you up, you back me up. And that's kind of what we did until until I heard about the game of disc golf. And that's when I, I'm leading into the, the polls and all that. It was just a kind of a weird entry into the whole sport, not having a basket right away yeah. to, to know what's going on, you know, really. So I, I kind of found my love for the game through – throwing at these posts, you know, and teeing off on dirt tees with a tiny little one and a half foot post next to it. So if you stumble to the right, you were cracking up your shin and stuff on them. It was, it was pretty dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and was, it was this Cliff Stevens park, like the park that everyone knows as Kenny's course, or is this a different place? No, this is Cliff Stevens park was uh, wow. probably in, I'd say for six months talking to the historians and the people who, got it going there probably six months before I ever stumbled onto the, to the posts myself. 
And uh, I guess they had a tournament there. Um, I guess it would be early 87 where they brought in portable baskets. Oh, and nice. that had happened one time before I heard about the sport. So they had like a tournament there with portable baskets and then they took them away and, you know, it was just the posts again. And uh, I started, I started throwing with a coupe and was my only disc and I had it for about three months, just one disc. <laughs> what happened to it? You, you threw um, it in the water or what? Uh, you know, I, I really don't remember what exactly happened to it. I think I had it for a little while and okay, cool. I might've given it away and let someone use it. Cause it was, you know, it was useful, useless to me after, after a little while, after I started figuring out some new molds and some other things that I liked, but it was really hard to get a disc. That's one thing I'm going to have to say when I started, it was not like today where you can just get any disc you want style, weight, color, you know, everything yeah. at your fingertips. You can, you can get it all right now with a click of a button, anything. What we had to do was we had to stand at this guy's trunk when he pulled up and be there. And hopefully, hopefully he just got a disc order. And when he opened his trunk, he would get raided. And you, if you didn't buy a disc right then and there, you probably weren't going to get a new one. Yeah. It's not like you could just crack open the phone book and search for disc golf discs and roll down to the shop. Right. I mean, it's like pretty underground. And Walmart and Dick's and places were like that. We're not carrying them at that point. So <laughs> no. Yeah. Wow. So that makes sense. I mean, so, so you said early 87, I, I noticed also in 87, that was your very first PDGA tournament. And, um, uh, I guess this isn't going to surprise many people, but you won. <laughs> you won the very first tournament you ever played was the 1987 Crosstown classic in Orlando. So you had a short drive. Uh, it, that was amateur. Do you have any kind of memory of that, like that very first official tournament, or had you played kind of some non-PDGA? You know, obviously there's no way for me to check into that stuff. No, that was uh, that was my first foray into any kind of organized event, and uh, that was in Orlando, and they used multiple courses on that one. I think Turkey Lake and uh, UCF. That was why they called it the Cross Crown Classic because they used the, those those two courses were across town from each other. One was on the east side, one was on the west side. And and yeah, you won it, right? I mean, was that a surprise, or we just kind of knew you were pretty good already, or what? Yeah, I had, I had already buddied up with Cr Willie, who was a little more into the know than me about all this stuff. And you know, me and him were battling back and forth in in our practice sessions before we ever went to this thing. And he and I were 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 quite a quite a pair, you know, to battle each other and bring each other up. You know, we were kind of striving to beat each other. And that's kind of what, what helped us ascend through some of the lower ranking players and up into the upper ranking players early in the beginning, just because we had a drive to beat each other. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's, I mean, that's so important to have a kind of a training partner. Right. I have heard like, uh, that you had some uh, pretty, you know, I've heard rumors of just like incredible uh, practice regimen for you kind of in the early days where you were playing just so many rounds and putting. And, and was that was that this time frame or was that kind of after you'd turned pro? Um, you know, it was a, I was I was working a lot. So it was like any time I could get off work or any time we could get off early or the weekend when I didn't work, I would go out there. And you're right. I sometimes would play 10 rounds of golf. There wasn't wow. many players out there, so it was either you know me or me and a buddy, and we could whip around there pretty quick. And in the beginning, my course was only nine holes. There was no back nine at Cliff Stevens when I started. So, 
It was kind of easy to whip around. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, man, it certainly worked putting in the time. And it didn't take you long. I'm kind of, kind of, I'm going to hit you with, I'm going to talk for a little while here and hit you with a little story of just kind of some stats because I need to make sure all the listeners, as you know, you know, the silver lining of this COVID thing has been incredible growth in disc golf. And I think a lot of these people have found our show and they maybe haven't heard your name as much as maybe they should have. So I kind of want to tell a little story, go through some statistics, and I'm just going to kind of let you react to those things uh, afterwards and then get into some more stories of your storied pro career, obviously. So you turn pro that next year, 1988. You play your first world championship in 1989, and you take fifth place. That was in Waterloo, Iowa. So you drove up there, I presume, and did very, very well for yourself, considering you're still pretty new to tournaments. Then 1990 rolls around, and... The 90s, you start the most dominant decade in disc golf history, the most dominant decade we will ever see, winning the world title nine consecutive times from 1990 all the way to 1998, many of those winning by double digits. I put some statistics together just going through the PDJ history for for all your tournaments that you played in the 90s, and I want to just tell people kind of how that went. So in the 1990s. For those 10 seasons, you played 201 tournaments. I don't know if you're going to be aware of these numbers or not, but out of 201 tournaments, we did this with Juliana, and it was mind-blowing as well. 201 tournaments, 140 wins, 36 second places, 11 thirds, and only 14 times in that entire stretch not on the podium. So that equates to 70% wins, 93% podiums, and 187 trophies. So where are where are all those trophies? And <laughs> and and, uh, and just yeah, man. I mean, just talk. I guess a little bit about kind of that transition from going to that world, and then just the dominance of the 90s. You know, I, I got some more specific questions for you, but I guess maybe take us through through. Let's go to 1990. Let's talk about your first world championship win and what you remember from that. I would like to back up to the year beforehand because I think it's worth noting. Oh, please do. We love that. That. Yeah, we uh, in 1989, the first world I ever attended, C.R. Willie and I were uh, doubles partners when they used to do doubles at the world championships. I don't think they do that anymore, but they did, uh, you know, yeah, same now sex. It's on, same now sex it's only yeah, mixed. Now it's yeah. mixed, mixed, right. So anyway, we show up there and, you know, at the time, our, our PDGA numbers were very high, 4297 yeah. and 4390. They're very low these days, but back <laughs> yeah. at that world championships, people were looking at us like, oh, these guys are brand new. Oh, they're they're newbies and stuff. So we get paired up with these guys from Arizona, Johnny Carroll and David Demery. I don't know if you know Johnny Carroll, the Arizona guy who rides around on his bike and gives everybody refreshments out out at the uh, memorial. Oh, really nice. nice. I'm guy. sure. I'm sure I've seen him, but I'm not, I wasn't aware that he had that kind of history. But yeah, cool. Yeah. So uh, we get we get teamed up with those guys the first round of the doubles, and they were licking their chops. They're like, "Look at these guys, PDJ numbers. They're really, really high. We're gonna, we're gonna wax them. You know, we're just gonna smoke them." <laughs> we came out, we shot like fifteen or sixteen under, and they were like, "Man, I never heard of you guys before, but wow, you guys are really good." <laughs> I don't know how many we beat them by, but it was quite a few. You know, six or seven strokes. Yeah. We and uh, he basically we made good friends with those guys, and they're like, "If you ever out our our, our area, you know, come come stay with us." And, I have stayed with that guy probably 10 different times in Arizona. What an awesome friend I made nice. that, that long ago. But to make a long story shorter, CR and I went on to shoot another stellar round, the second round, and we were tied for the lead. 
in the in the doubles world championships and we were at one course and the other team was at a different course so we ended up having to drive to the course that they were at which it was john a hart and steve valencia okay we get to the first tee and we're ready to start the playoff and john a hart looks at me and says who the hell are you guys <laughs> wondering who's who are these guys we've never even heard of or tied with us the you know world champ from two years ago john a hart was and steve valencia you know top player in the game at that time and uh i looked back at him and i said where are the guys came from florida to kick some butt <laughs> <laughs> and we proceeded to beat them in a two-hole play oh yes sudden death but we beat them on the second hole and cr cr and i were world champions wow uh, first time ever trying to compete in any kind of world championship type thing we won and it just flabbergasted me i was like oh my gosh we are <laughs> we are where we need to be right here we should have yeah. come to this thing yeah because there was a little that's... intrepidation going there and okay what, what am i what am i in for here <laughs> yeah that's amazing ken in 1989 at the worlds what does your bag look like how many discs do you have and do you remember what you were what you were mainly throwing then yeah uh, at that point i was probably carrying you know 12 to 16 discs and a lot of stingrays and classic rocks and XDs and ABRs and maybe a Cobra. I think, I think Cobra had come out by then. So probably a Cobra in the bag. Nice. And so, yeah, then, so where was the world that following year in, in 90, that was Arizona, wasn't it? It was. That's when Johnny Carroll said, you know, when you guys come out and stay with us next year for the worlds and then anytime you want to afterwards. So it was like, it was a, a plan already made, you know, it was going to happen and a year prior. We already knew we were going and it was yeah. going to happen. We were staying yeah, at so, Johnny's. <laughs> so I guess at, at that point you kind of, you'd taken fifth and you'd won the double. So you kind of know you got a shot going in in 90. You've been grinding that whole time. I'm sure like playing as much as you possibly can in your free time. Um, but then, you know, I'm sure you didn't, you you certainly don't, weren't any kind of favorite coming in in 1990, right? No. I mean, I played a couple, you know, good tournaments that summer. I think I won the Laurel Springs Open, maybe one or two other big ones, the Edgewood Electric, which doesn't happen anymore. But that was one of the big tournaments back in the day, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And then, so, so what do you remember about winning that one down down in uh, in Phoenix area? Oh, I, I remember it took really good golf all week because there was a lot of birdies. Every, there was a lot of people really far under par, and you had to shoot, you know, basically 45, 44, 46, somewhere like that almost every round to, to be up in the mix. And I do remember the final round was uh, probably the most exciting final round that I've been a part of in the World Championships history. There was three different leaders and nine different lead changes through the final 18. Wow. And who were those other two guys? Uh, Sammy Joe Grisafi from Texas and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's all right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a long time, but the guy who got second, that's the guy who got second, right? I think that, that guy yeah. you mentioned from Texas, John a Hart, I think was the other one. Gotcha. I think crazy John Brooks rounded out the, the foursome, I believe. Wow. Wow. Man, so then, yeah, you win it. Obviously, you're you're kind of arrived now, you know. And but still, it's not like are you are you seeing this? You're not seeing this as a career at this point, right? I mean, it's still no. like a hobby, and you know you're the man, but you're not like it's the, there's not money there, really. Not at all. Yeah, I'm still building houses, you know, doing framing, rough rough construction work, and uh, 
I was, it was like, a, you know, getting paid to go to a gym. So it was really good for me back in those days when I was younger and could do it. And I was like getting a workout and getting paid for it. And then I, my boss was really cool. He said, you know, if you're not here, you're not getting paid when I wanted to go to tournaments. And I was like, that works for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So in kind of those early 90s years, uh, even into the late 90s, I guess, does does one season kind of, it's a two-part question, I guess. Does one season kind of stand out to you as your very best season? And and if, if your answer is that it was in the 2000s, that's fine as well. I was just kind of focusing on the 90s. But the second part is, uh, you know, obviously through that time, you're a huge favorite almost everywhere you played after getting into the later 90s. But who are some of the players that stand out to you as kind of the toughest competitors in that in that era? Oh, do you want me to answer the first part first? first will... Yeah, sure. So what, what okay, season or if, the, if one if one does stand out to you? Oh, it's undoubtedly one season, 1995. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say because I, I dug into the stats. And yeah, that one is 26 tournaments. 23 wins three second places that's that's yeah. that's it that's it yeah i got a, a playoff loss a one stroke loss and a four stroke loss on those three second places wow so so basically so yeah. eight oh, eight man. strokes from winning everything <laughs> that is crazy <laughs> so yeah yeah clearly you know that's not something anyone can do that's a that's a, a kind of maybe something we're only going to see once a season like that in the mpo division but uh, yeah, for that second part, kind of who are some of the players in the 90s that, that kind of stand out to you if you think back like this is the toughest out? Obviously, you were the guy. You are winning almost everything. But there's still got to be a couple guys you're kind of like, well, shoot, if I come into this last round tied with him, it could be a battle. You know, Crazy John was always a really tough competitor. And this is more early 90s kind of talk yeah. here. Crazy John, Steve Valencia, what an awesome player he was. He could throw both-handed uh, Heiser left, Heiser right, you know, it's kind of like the sidearm is nowadays. He had it with the lefty back then. Yeah. Or actually the righty. I think he was lefty predominant. He threw righty Heiser once in a while when he needed okay. to throw that type of shot. And man, he could put the lights out of it. I think he won player of the year a couple of times you were talking about that I didn't win. He won it a couple of years. Um, he was, he was phenomenal. He was an awesome player and, uh, really loved battling with him. Nice. And then, yeah, into the later 90s, you're kind of battling against, like, Scott Stokely a little bit. And Ron guys Russell, like that. Yeah. Mike Randolph, uh, Brad Hammock even, man. I mean, that guy, when he was on point, he could he could play with the best of them. I'll tell you. Yeah. A little, little dynamite in small package, but he had some fire to him. Definitely. He definitely still does from the, from the times I've uh, seen him any time kind of recently in the last 10 <laughs> years or so. Um, so, yeah, you're, you, you kind of were – Mr. Innova at a certain point, I kind of want to dig into that because, you know, I don't know if people know this, but like there wasn't like a team Innova. There wasn't a team anything back then. And team Innova was a one man wrecking crew. It was you, you know, and, and I, I don't really know this story. I'm, I was curious as to, you know, how did that relationship begin and and did and at what point did it kind of start to change your perception of disc golf as far as like oh maybe I could kind of like maybe this could be sort of paying the bills and be a career thing for me, uh, you know with with Innova's help. I think in the beginning there was you know a few sponsored players, but anybody who was sponsored, say you know mostly the California guys, you know the Lissamans and and those guys who were all Innova tight. and basically they would you know they would give us product and yeah. we wouldn't have to pay for our discs, and that's how it all started for all of us, you know, all those players back in the day was, I wasn't any different than them. We got a certain allotment of discs and that was it. And then the KC line of discs came out in 96, late 96, I believe it was. And 
that's when I started to think, you know, when I started getting those royalty checks, I was like, man, maybe this could be a viable option. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you know how many, like when it came, was that the first King Climo signature stuff? It kind of all dropped at the same time on a bunch of different discs or. Yeah. There was a, uh, like a Pegasus, a Raven disc that just aren't even <laughs> yeah, really thought of or, or even talked about anymore. There was a few discs in there and uh, I don't think the uh, rock didn't come in until the eight time. And then the AVR didn't come in until the nine time. So not exactly sure what it was all in the beginning, but uh, sure. I know I know the Pegasus and the Raven were the early first two KC yeah. discs out there. I talked uh, a little gazelle, bit with the Gazelle. Oh, that sure, was one of the early ones too. Yep. Yeah, Cheetah. Maybe I think I feel like I've seen your name on a Cheetah. I could be wrong, but um, uh, I saw I talked a little bit with Jonathan Poole, who served as team director for Team Innova for a long time, and just recently resigned that position. But he told me that he remembered playing with you in like 1997 or 1998 and how you had been so insistent that disc golf needed to have par fours and par fives. And that just kind of wasn't a thing. And he, he kind of credited you with changing, uh, you know, Winthrop Gold and, and their idea to like combine a bunch of holes to make that iconic hole five and, and taking the game to a new place. Do you, do you kind of remember some of that conversation? I'm sure you were telling everyone who would listen. Uh, that you felt like that was a necessary thing. Yeah, yeah, I definitely remember that explicitly. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, I, I was a golfer growing up. My dad had me swinging the clubs when I was seven years old, falling in love with the game. It uh, teaches you all sorts of different things, you know. And uh, to, to be, call ourselves golf, I thought we needed to be like golf and have par fours and fives as well. I mean, throwing and putting every hole just kind of got old, you know. It was, there's not, not as much strategy involved. Yeah, sure. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's kind of amazing that it took that long, you know, in looking back, because it feels like such a huge part of the the top level game now. But it is crazy to think that all those all those world championships are just, you know, more more that pitch and putt style rather than having the strategy of like, I'm going to go for it here. I'm going to play back here. I mean, that just adds a whole nother dynamic. Well, even as the courses started to get longer and become more of a par, par four, you know, type holes, they would still call them par threes. It was this mentality that just stuck from the beginning that everything was a par three. You're playing a 900 foot hole, par three, par in a 200 foot hole, par three. It just, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, come on, let's logically think about this here. That one should be a par four. This one should be a par three. It's kind of like the, the De La Viega I-5 thing where that's still a three, right? It's right, like, right. It's like the old school way. Yeah, where, where it's like 550 and a tunnel at the end and all kinds of junk you can get into. And it's like, obviously, a three is great here. You know, no one's getting two hardly ever. But right. Unless some miracle thing happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even well, as late as 2002, the world's there. You know, we had a we played a course, attorney course, I believe it was 11 reachable holes and seven that were, you know, 700 feet or more. And I shot a 43. My putter never hit the ground. And I got I got credited with an eleven under par. Oh my gosh! Ten seventy nine rated round because when ratings kind of first started coming out. Yeah. Wow. And this so was it's basically it's an eighteen under. Basically I mean. an eighteen under these days. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, so kind of bringing myself into this story a little bit for me personally, starting as a player in two thousand, I remember it kind of being you, Barry Schultz. Uh, Cam Todd, those were kind of the guys I saw on like the VHS tape that was under the Christmas tree as a kid. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Barry as a competitor towards the the later part of your open career, 
And also, if you could give us kind of your take and tell the story of the now legendary 2003 USDGC. Oh, yeah. The, the playoff. <laughs> yeah. The battle. <laughs> the heroic battle. One heroic battle, I think. The yeah, was. man. Yeah. 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 Barry, you know, Barry's he's a great guy. Great competitor. He's uh, I think he's played for much longer than me. I think he started in 1979 or something like that, as I recall. Just an absurdly long time to be throwing the disc. And uh, he's one of those guys where, you know, if you weren't on your game, you were definitely going to be falling well behind him and having to make up tons of strokes. And you didn't want to have to do that against him because it doesn't want to happen. <laughs> yeah, but he but he didn't really like he wasn't really like a factor in the early nineties and stuff, right? No, I mean, no, not in the early nineties. No, it came you know later nineties and then early two thousands. He he came on like a gangbusters. But I remember him seeing him at like the World Doubles Championships in uh, National Doubles Championships in Round Rock, Texas, with a friend of his, Paul Nietzsche, I believe. That was the first time I remember seeing him. And that was probably mid nineties ish, but he still still wasn't up towards the top of the game until you know, like I said, late nineties when he started showing up on leaderboards and getting into world championship final final groups and things like that. And uh he started to figure it out a little bit then. Well yeah, he's super high on our priority list. I haven't reached out to him yet, but definitely gonna need to have him on the show and hear his take. But yeah, can you kind of take us through that that two thousand three USDGC? Because it's just a, one of those stories that uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people that are listening to this show maybe have heard, uh, but just one of the most epic things that's ever happened in major championship. Yeah, you know, it was uh it was quite a battle all week long. I remember we were, you know, nip and tuck here and there and I, I don't remember if it was the 2001 where he beat me by a stroke or it was the 2003 where we tied where he ended up clipping like four or five strokes off me on the back nine to get tied with me. Wow. And, uh, you know, I think he birdied what he birdied the last three holes of regulation also to, to be in that tie. And then we birdied nine holes together in a row for that's 12 for him. And then he birdied the 10th one would be, 13 birdies in a row for him on on that to to finish me off and I my putt on 18 you know that tough basket placement I was up on the hill kind of short over by those bushes putting downhill and gave it a good stroke and just missed a touch high I was high enough at the band uh man it was and then he he made a couple of unbelievable putts during that playoff as well I think he made uh one from up by the stump on 18 you know where that stump I don't know if it's still yes. there but yes. he made one from up there and that's a really dicey putt and then he made one from short left of the tree on one old hole one that big fat tree with the bush yeah he was short of that up left and I was parked and he made the putt to keep it going it just just couldn't dispatch the guy <laughs> and uh, wow. he ended up taking it down yeah, I think I think I had a DVD of it. It must. I, I wonder if it's on YouTube. I gotta look. And if if it is, you guys need to get out there and watch this because it was insane. I mean, nine straight birdies in a playoff. Both of these guys just at the peak of performance, running the loop of hole one, then the treacherous seventeen that just can get to anybody, and then the super super tough eighteen at Winthrop with the treacherous green, just making three after three after three. These guys just birdieing it so. Check that out if you can. But, yeah, I mean, that was that's the only story I think we can really tell on this show where you didn't win because you kind of won everything. But that was kind of, you know, even though that one didn't go your way, still one of the most kind of amazing stories. Uh, of I'd like to add something into that story. Uh, I don't know if people see it in the video or have seen it, but me and Barry were just at, by the time it was to the eighth, ninth playoff, while we were just 
we're just happy with just being there and it wasn't like stressful. We like put our arms around each other and walked up the fairway. It was really friendly. It was the most friendly, intense situation I've ever been in. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, I don't even know what it'd be like. It's like, yeah, you got to just like tip your hat. Eventually it's like, how are we doing this? You both look at each other and smile. Like this is unbelievable. We're just both, nobody's going to stop. How are we going to be here all night? What's going on? <laughs> kind of, that's what was going on. Yeah. That's when we both just kind of embraced each other and walked up the fairway, you know, like with our arms around each other's shoulders and going, man, this is awesome. I wouldn't wow. want to be here with anybody else. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, nobody else really had the chops to get there. I'd say it's like only two guys really had what it took to be there. So Incredible. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, for me, uh, I want to talk about a round that you probably have no memory of the 2006 Beaver State Fling in Oregon, the final round. I found myself on a card with Ken Climo, Nate Doss, and Avery Jenkins. I had played like 10, 20 ish golf to that point, which was really, really good for me in that, in that time. I was still a very low thousand rated type player, a uh, young kid, kind of. And I remember shooting 936 being super nervous the whole time i think i was bob back of the box on the tee the entire round and the moment that i remember the most from that whole round hole 12 on that course uh the west course at milo mciver it's like 400 feet straight away the basket's up on a mound there's bad rough on both sides got it river to the left got it yep yep i hit i hit the fairway or something i chip up under the basket you, I think you might have gone right early. I don't know what, but you're in the woods. You're like your second shot is short in the woods, 50, 60 feet on the left side. You're back in the woods. I can barely even see you. And I go, I remember thinking, well, I'm doing terrible, but I'm not going to be Bob after this. And then you just came flying out of the woods, jump putt out of the woods, and just cashed it on me. And uh, I stayed Bob. <laughs> it, was, it, it was so crazy. And I, I just remember being so starstruck. And I wonder how you feel about kind of, you know, I've been lucky enough to kind of do that to some players myself now, but like, you got to have the record, you know, for the most kind of wide eyed people like, oh my gosh, I'm playing with the champ. And, you know, that's just an amazing thing. Like, how, how how do you feel about being that guy to so many people for so long? I never really put that onus on myself. I always just felt like I was just another regular person. You know, I, I never <laughs> thought I was better than anybody else or anything like that or held anything over anybody. I always just thought I was just another person. And if there was any pressure on that person, it was not put on by me. That's for sure. It was put on by themselves. No, that's for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I wouldn't try to insinuate, like, I would say almost the opposite. Like, this is a story that I've told people. And that I've heard echoed by so many players. You, I don't know how you do it. If you can tell me, I'd love to know. You are, you've done a better job than anyone I've ever seen at just like remembering everybody's name. I remember just being shocked early, early in my career when I'd get show up in South Carolina and you'd be like, "Hey, Nate," and I'd be like, "Champ knows my name," you know. And, <laughs> I, and I've heard like, I've heard so many other pros like, "Yeah, man, he knew." And, and it doesn't stop at pros. Like you're remembering volunteers and. I just think you're such an engaging guy and you've like, I don't know, I'm terrible at it. Like, I, I feel like I'm a nice guy and I try to be thankful to all the people that help me and I just forget people's names left and right. So, I, I mean, I think you've, you've just made people's day that way for a long time. I'm not trying to say you were like some tough, unapproachable guy, but, you know, just the just the career that you've had and the, the success you've had just makes you 
uh, just an amazing, like a larger than life figure, you know, for me. In right. Right. Like if I went out and played ball golf with tiger, I'd probably shank it all over the course. Yeah, sure. You're yeah, kind of like, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is it. You know, I don't care if I'm hitting in the water, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, so I get you. I get you. Yeah. But I just kind of wanted to share that with you. Cause that was one of my early memories. Uh, you know, another, another really early memory I had of you is uh, playing with you at the master's cup. And I was all, there was like some, it was that kitchen hole. And then they had it on the little place down to the left. I can't remember. It's like number 13, but usually it's like blind. And then and this one year they had it in this little short spot. Oh yeah. 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 Where you either got to crash through the woods or you throw the big high turnover. Yeah. And I remember yeah. being like, oh, like oh, there's a backup and I like didn't know what to do. And I was like going back to my bag. And I remember you just being like, Hey man, just aim it right there and just throw it flat. And I, you were like, you're in my group. You know, I wasn't much of a threat to you, but you just like told me what to do. And I did it and it parked it. And I was like, thanks champ. Like, <laughs> like just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I remember from, from competing against you. It was never like a, yeah. I mean, you were I love gracious. helping people. I love helping people. I, even if it's during tournaments, man, if they, if they want help, sure. Bring it. Sweet, man. Well, <laughs> you, help, well if you if you ever want to come caddy for me, man, I bet I could use some advice. That sounds <laughs> that sounds just fine. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So uh, uh, I, I guess I wanted to touch on um, your your last open major that you won, the 2007 USDGC, and you went out in style. Not that not that at this point you knew you probably weren't going to win another one, but you won by 11 shots over Avery Jenkins. It wasn't like you limped in. You were still dominating in 2007. And I remember that award ceremony and I just want to get your take on it because I remember they had all these guys with Harley Davidson's drive around the lake, this big dramatic thing. And then they put $15,000 on the table, $1 bills. And you were like laying down and like, yeah, did you get all that in your lug? Did that fit in your luggage? What'd you do with that? (laughs) I think they took that back to the bank. (laughs) I got a piece of paper. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. I bet. But that was a funny moment. I remember all those motorcycle, tough looking motorcycle guys with the backpacks full of cash. Oh yeah. Rock. Rock was in that group, I think. Yep. Definitely. And it was, yeah, I was rolling around the table on it. Remember a picture of my feet up in the air. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, man. And then uh, one, I guess I'm just I'm just kind of sharing some stories that I remember of you. But then a uh, 2008 Japan Open, uh, they had this thing where, you know, there was these con- these like cottage condo things. And I was traveling kind of with like Avery and uh, Feldberg and they were kind of taking me over to Japan. And I remember them telling me like there's supposed to be four people per cottage. It's like these shared bedrooms, but like there was some problem with it. So you didn't get in the one with us. So it's just you and Climo you guys got your own cottage and you each have your own room and you're not sharing with anybody. And I remember being like, really? What? You know? And I just remember like sitting in there, like watching Japanese TV, neither one of us understanding a word and just trying to pick your brain on stuff. And, um, just, yeah, just, just kind of an amazing time for me as a, as a young player to be like posted up with King Climb. just watching the news in in Japan. Yeah. Weren't those good times over there? The Toa Pure Cottages. I remember that. Yeah, Those man. things were pretty cool. And then they had the warm mineral soak over there in the other building. Yeah. That place was awesome. And the course we got to play on was just unbelievable. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And I, re- I mean, I remember, you know, I, I hit a putt. I think we were all playing together. And I hit a putt on the last hole, you know, a couple, I don't know, 25 footer. And I actually ended up getting you and Nate Doss by a stroke. And I just remember I didn't win or anything. I got fifth, but it just was like, no way. I can't believe it. You know, just like just everybody who kind of comes up through the game and then you get a chance to, 
play, play go toe to toe and maybe even come out on top against these legends. And that, you know, that was really big for my confidence and just a, a, a memory that I'll always cherish playing, staying and hanging out with you every day and then playing and getting to play in your group. And then even coming out on top for once, um, was just a really special thing for me. So thanks for letting me get that putt. Thanks for or whatever putt you might have missed to let me have a chance. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Just, I'll just blame it on the 150. Just <laughs> yeah, it was tricky, dude. We were playing with the 150 gram. It was pretty tricky. Um, so yeah, man, back to, back to that's kind of my memory lane. We'll get back to your stuff. So I was wondering, um, you know, what strengths do you feel like set you apart competitively through all those dominant years? And if there was one, like, what do you feel? What was your weakness uh, th- through your game? Well, let me start off with the weakness, which is probably a long sidearm. <laughs> 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 I mean, the discs just weren't capable back then, really. Sure. There wasn't many people doing it at all, throwing long sidearms. I mean, obviously, people were throwing some shorter sidearm shots, but the distance didn't take the torque. They Everything was flippy. So if you put a high torque and sidearm shot on it, you were basically turn into a roller with those discs back then with most any mold you threw until some, you know, stable, more stable stuff came out like a Viper. And then you could maybe hammer on that and it wouldn't roll over. But uh, that would probably be my biggest weakness is long sidearms. But I do have a sidearm. I can throw a sidearm. I've got great little yeah. touch, short sidearms, sidearm rollers, sidearm trouble shots. I'm pretty good with, you know, up to about 200, 250 feet or so with a sidearm. But you give me past three hundred, and I don't have a chance. <laughs> sure, and then and then, how about your your greatest strengths? Kind of that you feel like kind of set you apart. Um, definitely putting. It was one of my my big strengths because I just didn't like to miss putts if I thought I was the putt I could make, and I putted conservatively. It wasn't like I ran every putt, and if I missed, I was thirty feet by. You know, I I played golf, so I knew the value of being closer when you miss. So I developed a putt where if I missed, I wasn't going to have a comeback putt. I was tapping in every time. So I was able to give it a good, you know, solid run every time and not be that far past. I think that was one of my pluses where a lot of people I saw would, would three putt a lot more often than me just going for them, you know, in wrong situations and going 25 feet past the wind picks up, boom, all of a sudden they're three putt. Uh, that was definitely one of my biggest strengths. And the other one was just accuracy, you know, just being accurate, not yeah. being wild. I threw low, I threw low discs, very straight. I didn't take a lot of curve. If I didn't have to take a lot of curve, I wouldn't take a lot of curve. I would just throw low, straight shots. And, you know, we throw a low, straight shot. It's not much deviation can happen from that. And I built my game around that, you know, less deviation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think uh, I think the, the only thing I would add, um, you know, in terms of a strength is just like a competitiveness that uh, I think is very rare, uh, that you were just kind of a guy – in my experience that it doesn't matter if it's disc golf or cards or, or whatever you're doing, ping you're just pong or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You got a, you got a will to win that not a lot of people can match. And I feel like that is maybe not a physical strength, but certainly something I think of when I think, okay, how did Ken Climo do it? That's a big part of, of where my mind goes. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good question is how did I do it? Like if I look back on all the different times that I won by one or two strokes, it's amazing that I came out on top that many times, you know, more yeah. than, than not. It's just amazing. And some of those were by one, two strokes, tied playoff. You know, it's over a bunch of 72 holes. That's not very much <laughs> difference yeah. between me and the other players. I mean, people think that I didn't have anybody to play against people. You know, some of the newbies, oh, there was no one to play against. He just did. There was some, some serious talent back in the day. I mean, really, really good players. Yeah. Solid players. Yeah. And 
you don't think there was, then you are on the wrong ship, my friend, because there was <laughs> great players back in the day. And anytime I came out, came ahead by one or two strokes, I just looked up to the skies and was like, you know, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Why me? But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and like you said, I did have a really competitive, like chomping at the bit to, you know, to pull out the wins and do things like that. And, I think sometimes the conservative play, you know, would, would get me there too. Yeah. People would, cause they knew they had to come after me and they had to, you know, bring all their guns. And sometimes I could just play conservatively knowing they were going to make a mistake here or there on certain holes. Like, like Ricky did this last weekend, hole five and hole 18. He was said he was going to play him for par and he played him for par and he did, didn't hurt him in the end. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's the, that's the kind of thing I think I did better than everybody else back in the days. They might have went for everything or not went for things when they should have. You know, it's just a combination of that type of thing. But I always had that mental, you know, fortitude to to want to score the best I could against the course. I wasn't really playing the competitors. I wanted to beat the course. Yeah. And that's basically how I played the game. If I, if I beat the course to the best of my ability, I should win. That was what I thought. Yeah, and I think you were right. I think the 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 history bears that out. I think you you were right in that way. But uh, you actually answered one of my next questions right there because I was curious. It was going to ask how closely you follow the today's game, and it sounds like very closely because you know about Ricky's strategy decisions from just the other day. So, well, yeah, I was uh, listening to one of the better you know commentators on the. Hey, man! All right. <laughs> when he said something like that, I listened. Oh, but, thank uh, you. Yeah, and we thank had you. Nate Doss. We had Nate Doss on this show actually too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah, so uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I know you've been battling an injury. Um, and, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, what what can we expect to see from you? Is there is there a light at the end of the tunnel for you, you think? Are we going to see you in a tournament sometime soon? We hope we will, but I know it's been a, a long road. Um, you know, at this point, my body is not liking playing more than one day in a row. <laughs> I yeah. can go out and play around. It's not an issue. One round, one day, it's fine. I could play a one round, one day tournament, but that's not the kind of thing I'm really into these days. <laughs> yeah. So for now, it's uh, not coming back anytime soon unless something with my body changes. And I'm going to need, I'm going to need some help on that one to, to get that accomplished. Yeah, man. Well, I hope we can get it done. I mean, that the game would the game is missing you for sure, and I hope you can get right so that you can come back and win you a couple more world titles. Because I'm sure you'd you'd be picking right up where you left off in the MP50 if you came back and uh, were able to be healthy through the week. So I hope that happens for you and for the for all the fans as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, man. I I just got a couple more questions before we hopefully we can get to some fan questions from our listeners. Um, this one's kind of broad. This one, uh, I was I was just with Nate Doss, and we were talking about what should we what should I ask the champ? What should I ask the champ? And you know, I don't know what you're going to say to this, but we, you know, just thought you've you've kind of left your mark and changed our game in a lot of ways. And I was wondering if there's kind of one thing that you look back on in your career and you kind of feel the most proud of as as just something that that you know Kenny did. Um. I would say you touched on it already, you know, bringing the game more into the golf realm, the par fours, the par fives, the, you know, decision-making, the strategy, the cerebral part of the game where it's not just throw and putt, throw and putt, throw and putt, you know, the more OBs. Uh, I would like to see, you know, more decisions on 
left and right. Like maybe you have a red hazard left and a white hazard right, white being OB reti, red being take it up there. You know, more like ball golf where there's a better side to miss too if you're going to miss, things like that. And I think, you know, helping with the USDGC and pointing them in that direction. And I think that's a good legacy to have left in my non-playing legacy. Yeah, that this, this sport needed that. It, it you know, it would. I don't think it's going to go anywhere if you just have you know two hundred and three hundred foot holes all day long every shot. It's just, it's not what it's all about. Golf is about you know putting yeah. yourself in positions to you know to make eagles and things like that. And Chuck Kennedy's kind of on the other side. He wanted to make things par twos. I was like, so you have to make a hole in one to get a birdie? That yeah. just doesn't make sense to me. Let's, let's let's go the other way with this and make it like golf. There is no par two in golf because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and just the idea of risk reward. I mean, I think that's huge. right. I think you, I think you, you don't have much of that if you can just reach every hole. It seems like today's game, they're even, you know, they're taking it a step farther and they're closing the OB lines in on, you know, every year, like, oh, this hole was tougher or tougher this year than it is last year. Oh, they closed the lines in on us a little bit. Hardly ever does it get easier when you go somewhere these days, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the game is becoming tougher in general just because they're squeezing in the areas you have to land. The OB's bigger, the fairways are smaller. And, and the uh, holes are longer all at the same and the time. The holes are longer, correct. Yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, man. So again, I, I just am, before we get to the fan questions, I'm just really thankful that you came on the show. And I just wanted to tell you, you know, I feel really lucky that, that my career arc kind of crossed over with the end of your kind of dominant era in the, in the open division. And I just want you know, this, but I want to tell you, you inspired so many players, me and a lot of other guys. And I just want to personally thank you for setting such a high bar and kind of for clearing a path. Uh, for the current generation of career disc golfers, because there's a lot of us that, uh, you know, are are out here doing it now. And um, I don't know that we would have had that chance without a lot of the work that you did kind of uh, bringing the game into a more serious place and, and just kind of doing what you did. So just a, a sincere thank you from me and a lot of my, my peers. Well, thank you for the, the thoughtfulness of that. Uh, it makes me feel, feel special inside. <laughs> I know, awesome. I hear I hear that from a lot of people, like you were the inspiration for me. You, know, you, you were the man when I was coming up and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I don't want to get a big head about it, but it really, really does. It, make, it, it softens my heart. It makes me feel awesome that I could, you know, be the pioneer out there and be the first guy that, you know, a company sees value in, you know, giving monetary value to the player and whatnot and seeing how much that player can help the company out. And I was, you know, obviously the pioneer of that. Because yeah. I don't think anybody else had any money deals going with this golf before I did. Yeah. They were getting product and things like that. So if I've opened the door for many others in the future, that's awesome. You know, I'm glad for it. Yeah, man. <laughs> it needed to be done, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you were the guy to do it. So if you have time, man, I'm sure we have an unbelievable number of fan questions. Jared will tell us soon, but we'll just kind of give you some of the best ones if you got a, got a couple more minutes to answer those. Sure. Sweet. Yeah. I mean – I've said this in quite a few episodes, but I literally was just overwhelmed with the amount of fan questions we got when we posted that we were going to be having uh, Ken on. So I did pick a few out, but um, Nate, we do have a responsibility to our audience and there's no way we can let the champ go without asking for one RV story, right? Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So we do a thing on this show, Kenny. I, I, I don't know how much time you spent traveling in an RV, but I'm sure there was some. And we kind of have a little joke going where we kind of ask people for like their 
whatever that worst night was on the road with the RV or whatever that stupidest mistake was that ever got made while you were trying to travel for disc golf. All right. I'll give you a worst and a best. Sweet. All right. All right. Uh, the worst was, uh, do I have to name names or do I just. <laughs> that's, up, that's up to you, man. That's up to you. <laughs> You're welcome to though. Okay. Okay. Well, Dave Felberg had welcomed me to stay in the RV with him at the 2015 Glass Blown Open, right before the year before the Worlds was there in Emporia. Yeah. And uh, so I'm expecting to bring my blow-up mattress and blow it up and sleep, you know, on the in the middle section of the RV because they didn't have an extra bed because there was discs up there or whatever. So I get there and, you know, we're getting ready to bunker down for the night and there was all these discs all over the place. He's like, Oh, I forgot. I picked up all these discs and there's no room for your bed. I guess you're going to have to sleep in the guy's chicken coop out here. What? <laughs> yeah. We were at this farm. Um, guy named Justin Clumpy lives in, outside <laughs> of Emporia. We were at this farm and you know, that's where Park Pelver was going to park. He was going to plug in. Everything was good for him, but there was no space for me or my bed in the RV, little single, you know, blow up bed. So oh, I, my goodness. I was fine with it. I was like, okay, but, I slept probably four or five nights in a basically a barn on a blow up mattress by myself. <laughs> Chickens, you know. <laughs> and, oh my gosh! Uh, it wasn't horrible, you know, but it just wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> That's the headline right there: the champ crashes in Clumpy's chicken coop. And there yeah, you go. And this is proof positive. This dude remembers names. He's like, "Yeah, I was in the chicken coop over at Justin Clumpy's farm. It was seven years ago." It's what the, this guy does this. All right. Now, uh, how about the that? So that was obviously that was the best. And you still got a worst yeah, coming. That was the best. Uh, <laughs> that actually was pretty fun. It, it, all in all, it was pretty fun. Just didn't expect to be sleeping in a chicken coop. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, the best was uh, didn't really stay in the RV, but we traveled in the RV from Santa Cruz to Portland. Actually, I think we only were going to Eugene. That's when the Dave and Avery lived in Eugene. And it was four, it was like five or six of us in the RV. Avery was one, Dave, Brad Hammock, myself, uh, Derek from the Chains video, and Bad Bad Beat Brad, also from the Chains video crew. Uh, that was our uh, that was our travel mates, and basically we had a rolling cash game on the table. If you were <laughs> if you were driving, you were out of the game. If you weren't driving, you were in the game. <laughs> and it was a you know 10 whatever 10 11 hour drive whatever it is and i think we ended up stopping at whistler's bend on the way up that morning like yeah, that's when the cash it. that's when the cash game ended and we we traveled through the night got to whistler's bend at 7 30 and played around at 7 30 a.m all of us after traveling all that distance and playing cards on, in the rv <laughs> nice i bet you uh, i bet you took them on the table and on the course that's my guess you know, I didn't feel that great on the course. I don't remember what happened out there. It was just a practice round. We weren't scoring or anything, but okay, I did take it. I did take them on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I was up like Chuck. <laughs> Beautiful. And Whistler's um, Bend, what an amazing piece of property that is. Uh, I love wow. it. I think it's my favorite course in the world, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's right up there with mine. I never got to play a tournament on it, but uh, just the ambiance out there is just really cool. Yeah. Well, Ken, we got a uh, we got a ton of fan questions, and one of the things that we do here at Running It with Nate Sexton is 
we allow fans to send in uh, audio submissions. Um, they can send those to running at podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I want to go ahead and play one that we got, which was, uh, which was pretty neat. So uh, we'll take an audio question first. Okay. Hey, Ken, I'm a 14 year old boy out of North California. I've been struggling with the mental game for a long time now. I've been competing a lot in my local scene, and I was wondering if you had any advice on mental game. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Um, well, my advice would be is not put as much pressure on yourself if you're doing that. Self-induced pressure is the worst thing you can do to yourself for competitive disc golf. And also, play within yourself. Don't try and throw shots that you might not be capable of throw shots that you know you're capable of and execute, execute, follow through, you know, finish. I think that's the biggest thing is finish your throws, follow through on your shots, uh, have a plan, go with your game plan, stick with that kind of mentality on the whole deal. And I think you'll do a lot better. Love it. Yeah, that's great advice. And uh, shout out. We didn't, I didn't get that young man's name, um, but 14 years old, a fan of running it. And obviously uh, a fan to send that question in for Ken. So thanks for that question, bud. Um, all right, Ken, I, we're just going to address the elephant in the room here because the, the one question that kept coming in over and over and over and over again is how do you think you would fare in today's game? So if you were in your prime and you were playing in the field that's playing now with the discs that they're playing on the courses that they're playing, how do you think you would fare? Uh, I think I'd be right in there with those 10, 50 boys to tell you the truth. Yeah, I right mean, you would be. I, I, don't think, I, I agree. I, I don't think I'd be above them or below them. I think I'd be right in there with them. And, uh, you know, cause I was a lot stronger back in the day when I was doing construction work and I was basically in my prime and I didn't really need a, a, a sidearm shot. I could throw a long turnover or a roller or anything like that that I needed to throw. And uh, I don't think the sidearm would have hurt me that bad, really. I know they're designing a lot more courses to get the like, kind of the skip sidearm shot or the lefty shot, the low ceiling off to the right kind of things. I think there's a lot more of that design going on these days. So I might have struggled a little bit just because of design these days, but ability i think i'd be right there with him remember i was 1045 rated and i had like speed eight discs yeah yeah he was the original 1050 boy even though he didn't go to 1050 but 1045 uh, with the, speed at eight the, discs. at the beginning of the ratings yeah for sure and i think uh you know i don't I, yeah i totally agree i mean you look at a james conrad a garrett girthy a kill lavisca drew gibson those guys aren't throwing four hands really and they're still ripping it so it's, right, it's certainly right. not a requirement no question right it's a little bit of an added bonus when you get to those few holes in a tournament where it's, you know, more lefty biased or sidearm biased. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is, I mean, and I, I checked it out a lot on the PGA uh, for the last few days getting ready for this, is that, you know, in, in other sports, it's always tough to say how one great would stack up against another because you're just never going to see it. But you know, you look at your scores when you were winning these titles. I mean, you're scoring in the 50s, in the low 60s, which is what the guys that are shooting now are shooting. So the scores are very comparable. And like you said, you were doing it with uh, with the, some less weapons in the bag. So uh, I, I don't think there's any question that you would you would be right in the top of the field right now as well. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd be out throwing these guys though. The, the the distance some of these guys are throwing these is unbelievable. Like Eagle just pops it off six hundred foot around some trees, like no no problem. Oh, that's no problem. Hey, I got that. 
Tell me about it, Kenny. Sasha so wouldn't even think about ever trying. Like he just pulls it off like it's nothing. Like there's definitely yeah, an dude, advantage dude. there. There's definitely an advantage there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm supposed to try to beat these guys. It's crazy. Right, they, right. they throw it. They throw it. You it'll blow your mind. The, His sidearm goes take. farther than my backhand. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm in that club too. I'm in that club too. <laughs> it's crazy. What? One of my favorite lines in the history of running it was uh, Paul Yulebari, who said, man, I'm telling you, they're just making them younger and stronger, and I don't know where they're coming from. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, and that's kind of how it looks out there. I've got a theory about that real quick. All the people who can it. throw 600 feet or more basically had a disc in their hand when they were, you know, five, six, seven years old or younger. Yeah. And you check, check it out. All those guys that can throw that far had a disc in their hand when they were that young. They grew up throwing the disc and it, their bodies built into it. I didn't throw a, a golf disc until I was 19. Sure. You know, so I didn't grow up, you know, throwing golf disc type shots and these kids did. And I think that's why they can throw so much farther than your average person that just picks it up as an adult. Yeah. You know what though? Are, are they, are they really enjoying the course as much as I am? Like I'm throwing 600, but it's in three tosses and I get to see the left side of the course. <laughs> okay. The right side of the course. Some army golf, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like when Nate was talking about Milo, I, I lived in Portland. I, I played Milo a bunch of times and, um, when he's talking about the spot off, you know, short into the woods. And I'm like, yeah, I know that spot, man. <laughs> so now I know that I've, now I know that I've thrown a shot from the same spot as you. It makes me feel a little bit better here. Um, a fun question that came in and this was, uh, from bro bros chat on Instagram. Ken, is there one throw in your career that you wish you could rethrow? Hmm. That's a pretty interesting question. <laughs> It's a lot of throws. There's a lot of throws to think about. Yeah, I mean, that's a ton of, you know, hundreds of thousands of throws, actually. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it would have to be the 2001 USDGC clown's mouth hole. I think I took a seven there, and Barry beat me by one stroke that year. Uh, and that was uh, the 15th hole of the final round, so four holes left to go in the round, and I had enough of a lead where I could have laid up and taken a par on the hole and still won the tournament and chose not to. So probably that one. That makes <sighs> sense. Yeah. Um, Mike from Instagram says, uh, Ken, what are your thoughts on today's plastics and the multitude of discs to choose from compared to the old school discs that you started with? Well, yeah, nowadays the variations are so little between one disc and another. And back when I started, the variations were much larger between one disc style and another disc style. So I think that's the biggest thing is you have so many variations to work through right now. It's, you can almost get lost in all the different discs there are and what they do back in the day. It was cut and dried. It's like, this one's kind of stable, but this one's pretty understable. It wasn't, there wasn't like five different plastics of the same mold that had slightly varying stabilities we didn't have that to deal with. So I think it was a little easier to pick a disc back in the days to pick one you like just because there wasn't much variation. And nowadays there's tons of variation between plastic and weight of disc and, you know, difference of mold. So it is the savant and the mustier and the T bird and the Eagle. How different are those four discs really? Sure. You know, but <laughs> they're not much difference. I bang all. them all into trees the exact same. See <laughs> right. It's, it's four different discs and four or five different plastics. So you have 20 varying discs of the same, <laughs> you know, 
strength sure. or so, so I say the same moldish kind of thing, not the same mold, but yeah, the same, same shape, class. the same, same class. class, the same shape, the same class, the same general flight characteristics. That that to me is you know you just pick what you like and 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 get a few of them if you like one disc and you know you like that run get get the same color the same weight the same run and get as many of them as you can because if that's the one you like that's the one you got to go with. Well, that that'll follow right up into another question from AJ, uh, and AJ asked, "What is your all-time favorite disc? You had to pick just one." The Casey Rock. Yeah, that's undoubtedly that's what, that's what I thought you'd say. That makes sense. It's not a flashy, far-flying disc, but it's a very accurate uh, birdie-getting disc or upshot-retaining disc. I mean, that disc, it's, it's a super disc. You can go out and play a whole round with it. You can putt with it. You can drive with it. You can roll with it. You can sidearm with it somewhat. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's a very versatile disc, and I think it's a great disc for you know a beginning player to get a hold of as well. It's not just a, a professional disc. It's, it's a good learning disc, too. It's very neutral. I love them. I still throw them. Get one. Get a KC Rock. You got to try it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, let's see here. Uh, Robert asked, is there any player that's playing now that Ken would love to play against when he was in his prime? Um, you know, I never really got to play with KJ USA. Never, never got to throw down with him. Or James Conrad. He kind of came in just after I was – Injured and done competing for a bit. Uh, I think those two guys would probably be my picks. Nice. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would love to see that round for sure. Um, all right. Let's see here. We we won't keep you much longer. I, like I said, I had so many questions that came in. I've got such a long list here. Um, so, well, you know, we had a fun question here. Somebody asked, you know, kind of what your level of passion for disc golf is today. It sounds like you're watching it a lot. I know you said you can't play it a lot. Um, how how are you on the sport today? I've kind of taken a step back from, you know, the competing side of the things, obviously. But I still go out to the local tournaments, the pro weekends and things, and see what's going on there. I'm heavily active in getting a – we just finished a new gold course layover at Cliff Stevens not that long ago. Finally got the tee pads and the baskets, everything in. It's a uh, – par 62 overlay kind of like Stan McDaniel does in Charlotte where he takes a course and overlays a longer, tougher course on it. Um, I've done that with my home course and I'd like, that's kind of where I'd like to see myself. I'd like to, you know, get into more of designing championship style courses and long, tough, make you think kind of courses. That's, that's where I want to kind of go with the, with my, with my name in the future, just been kind of nice to take a couple of years off. I grinded for 30 years. I've been spending time with the family and it's been nice just to be here at home for a few years without having to go anywhere and live out of a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would imagine the grind gets, uh, it, it probably gets old quick. And man, what a nice ring that has to it to say like, yeah, the, this professional major on Ken Climo designed. I mean, that, that, that sounds about right. Right. Yeah. So I've got one over in Tampa that I designed about seven years ago, opened up the day after my birthday in 2014. It's kind of not quite a gold course. It's silver, silver plus. It's not quite nice on the, on the top level gold course, but it's, it's a nice par 66, you know, maybe more of a par 62 for the top players, but a par 66 for the everyday guy. And, it's really nice. It's right by the airport, planes fly over you and stuff. And then the other one, like I said, is on my home course. And I'd like to, I'd like to get into doing that. 
you know, maybe fresh courses or overlays of people that have more, more land than their course has used. And they, they want to get a little tougher, tougher nice. play out of it. Well, we got, uh, we got so many questions here and I, I appreciate you answering a few of them. The one question that just kept coming in and I, I feel like I wouldn't be doing justice if I didn't ask it. And you, you kind of talked about how you thought you would fare. Uh, everybody would love to know what you think would happen in a Ken Climo prime Paul McBeth prime heads up match. <laughs> it could go either way. I don't know. What I, think, I think it would depend on the course we were playing. If it was a lot, bunch of long, open bomber shots, he'd probably get me. If it was more through the woods and technical, I'd probably get him. Yes, nice. I like that answer. And I'll tell you what, it's uh, I, we got a hundred of them, and I thought, you know, he's. I'm, I'm sure you're tired of hearing that comparison, but I, I had to ask, uh, you know, for my for my own for my own self being i guess <laughs> well he did come and stay here and live in clearwater for a little while when he dated uh Brittany blair and uh we got together and just about right before he was gonna get into his prime it was late 2011 on my home course and uh i putted from the wrong disc from about a four foot putt a tap in part it was two discs laying right next to each other they're upside down i didn't even check it i stepped up i thought it was mine putted in two-stroke penalty he beat me by a stroke on my home course. Oh. Basically, I was, what, 43 years old, and he was going to win the Worlds the next year right after that tournament. So I feel like I beat him, you know, by stroke-wise. I just had a two-stroke penalty, and he ended up clipping me by one because of the penalty. But I beat him in throws. There so there and when I was 43, I was hanging with Macbeth, who was <laughs> how old he was in 2011. Yeah. So if that gives you any indication of what I would have done when I was 25. Yeah. He would have been about 20 at the time, I think. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. I just love that. Well, it's uh, it's been absolutely amazing being able to have you come on and, and just share some of these stories. Um, in, in my mind as a fan, um, there's no doubt that you are, uh, you are the GOAT. And, uh, you know, I, I carry your discs in my bag and, uh, it's just an, an honor to be able to have you come on and, and share some of these stories for our listeners. And, uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, like I said, it's, I've been doing podcasts for about five years, rarely do I get starstruck. And, uh, and this one was one that was just a lot of fun to hear you guys chat and talk some disc golf. Cool. It was, uh, my first podcast actually. <laughs> hey, all Believe right. Or not. We're, we're honored, man. We are honored. And, uh, yeah, I just can't can't say enough. Hope you hope you get to feeling right, and hope we can see you out there again. Because uh, I'd love to see you throw. I'm kind of getting the itch again, Nate. It's 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 been tough. I've I've enjoyed this time off, but um, I'm getting the itch, and I kind of want to I want to want to come back out there. It's, Let's go. I just got to get my body right. Let's and we want to see you. We want to see you back out there. So, um, yeah, I I think it would be it would be amazing. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you have a good night. Hope you have a good week, and. Uh, yeah, man. We really, really appreciate it. I think the fans are going to really have a, a, a richer knowledge of the history of the game for having heard from you. Uh, Nate, I'd like to wish you good luck when you get back out on tour. I know you want to get back out there and uh, go heads up with these boys and show them what's up. Yeah, man. I'm going to Emporia in a couple days. It's going to be fun. Awesome. Good luck. Safe travels. Thanks, dude. Well, Nate, um, when we got this podcast going, I think we certainly decided that 
Ken Climo was like on the top of the list of, uh, of guests that we wanted to have on. I think we did it the right way. We, we had a bunch of an amazing guests. We got ourselves really rocking and rolling. We built up a ton of momentum. We helped Ricky take the win in Jonesboro. And then it was, it was time to have the champ on and he did not disappoint. Yeah. I mean, he was at the top of our list. He's kind of at the top of all the lists. Uh, if you want to make a list about disc golf, just just block out space one, and you could put him. Because yeah, how are you gonna how are you gonna tell the story of this sport? There's so many important figures, but like I'm biased towards players. You know, I, I'm I'm a player myself, so it's really pretty hard to think of anybody. You know, Dave Dunapace is maybe in that conversation. We got him already. Like who, who would you rather hear from than the, than the champ? I mean, the guy's nickname is basically just winner. I mean, do you realize how much you have to win to get people to just, before you even play, they just go, Oh, Hey champ. Yeah. We haven't played yet, but that's the guy, you know? So it, I'm just so happy that he agreed to do it. Like he, you know, this is the first podcast he'd ever been on, you know, uh, I'm just, I just feel really uh, lucky to to have had him come on our show and get to talk to him and uh, just a guy that obviously I, I've looked up to for a long time and haven't had really a chance to speak to in a while because uh, as you heard he hasn't really been out there for a couple of years. Yeah, it was just uh, it was amazing and I know that the listeners are really going to enjoy this. Um, I'm super excited about it. Now, Nate, I think it would only make sense if we went ahead and did another disc review. We've been getting emails and messages, and uh, I think we need to bring it back by popular demand. I know it's helped me out a lot as I'm developing my bag, and I think our listeners have really been enjoying hearing you kind of break down these discs and and what they do and, and how to use them. Yeah, man, it's pretty obvious which one we have to do, don't you think? Which one are we going with, man? For today's disc review, what else could I choose but the man's favorite disc, the Ken Climo KC Pro Rock. It's a disc I've used uh, for really almost my whole career. I remember having a 10-time KC Pro Rock. I used 11-time rocks for a long time. Now, obviously, since 2006 and Kenny's 12th world title, they're all 12-time rocks. But they have been a huge part of the mid-range game for me. They're just kind of like straight to overstable finish and the beautiful thing about it is that kc plastic maybe that's not ideal for your drivers but that durability level and that kind of more chalky feel i think is just so perfect for a mid-range it hits trees it'll take a little beating and it'll start to beat up but that's almost such a good thing because you can go through that progression where you you learn that disc and you grow with that disc and you know exactly how flippy it's become over time that I almost prefer an old one to a new one. I mean, I'd like to have both ideally, but you can end up carrying a, uh, like a big cycle of them through your bag of different ages. And that's what Kenny did for his whole career. Really. I think he would be having quite a few in his bag, probably four or five in his competition bag, and you can use them in so many situations. So I would really encourage you to give the KC pro rock a try. The guy didn't win 12 world championships by accident. And that disc was the one he said was his favorite that got it done for him. So give it a shot. I'm sure it'll work for you as well. Now, you had mentioned something. You'd mentioned that you were a player. Are, are you going to get back to doing some of that soon? <laughs> you, these, you, these Facebook guys need to quit it with this. Oh, you still play? Yeah, I've tried it. I've tried it. Leave me a chance here. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm heading out to Emporia. Uh, and we're going to see how it goes, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get some good practice in this week because my wife is on the night shift as of tomorrow. So that means she's kind of like home and awake between like two and 6 PM, which is like, that's those disc golf hours. So I'm going to get out there and do some field work this week. 
uh, get my my bag right for uh, Emporia, and we're playing the new Jones Gold layout some of the rounds. So I'm excited to see that. See what they always they always do it big in Emporia, and it's fun. And get back there working with Jomez, and yeah, man, I'm excited. And then and then it's pretty fast and furious after that. You know, it's like a West Coast swing. I'm playing those uh, World Championships. Um, I, I can't wait to get out to Kale's place. You heard me talk about that uh, when we had him on the show. But yeah, the season's kind of getting going for me, and uh, really excited. I, I just hope I can get out there and get get into good form and uh, play my game. It's gonna be fun. Yeah. Um... Listen, man, I want you to keep your eyes peeled. That hot dog bandit's out there. And I don't want any of those uh, those beautiful sexton discs to be getting uh, waiter stamped, man. I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit worried about that. But I, I did check. I checked my bag after Vegas. So I'm, I'm safe so far, but I'm sure I'm a prime target. Yeah, there's got to be some sort of sting operation that can be set up, you know, like one of the... Oh, me and Rick. Me and Rick. We can't talk about it, but me and Rick are on it. We, All right, we, good. We've got a whole we've got a whole thing going. So yeah, I, whoever that bandit is should be pretty worried. Are you listening, Eric Oakley? Are you listening or not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, man, I look forward to getting you out there. I'm looking forward to a uh, to a practice round with with you and uh, and and Big Germ and Yuli. I uh, I really hope that happens. I think you said it is going to happen. I got um, two pieces of good news for the fans. Uh, the practice round will happen, and the day after that. Champs versus chumps, baby. Oh man, are you? You know, I've been listening. I've been listening to Rock and the Brock just because I miss Champs versus Chumps so much. It's made it into like my my normal playlist now. We're coming and, back. Uh, oh gosh, I can't wait for that. So this is like this is really exciting news. Um, yeah, I had, I told you the last the last practice round, Big Germ just spitting wisdom, man. He's you know, man, that shot would have been really good if it was just better. <laughs> yeah i and i felt that i know i understand that feeling so uh awesome looking forward to uh to getting you back out there and seeing you play um and like you said you've got a, a big run coming of of tournaments so uh I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well guys you can find us on instagram and facebook at running it with nate sexton he is at frisbee nate i am at jared or two 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 at Hey, you know what, Nate? I got a message from uh, from our friends over across the pond at the uh, the Amside Boys, and they were like, "Hey, when you're talking about those other podcasts laying up, you, you're not talking about us, are you?" And I went, "No, no, no, we're not. So we do. We it's 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 nothing. It's nothing personal. It's not. It's not to anyone out there. But unfortunately, there are some people that are just." kind of laying it up nate and it's i don't think that's gonna happen here right no i think it's mostly runs for us though i mean the champ he did say you gotta have that cerebral game you gotta think about what you're doing i gosh i was about to run everything but now i'm kind of thinking maybe i gotta play that game plan a little bit either way we're gonna be back with more shows that's right i'm running it no matter what guys check out our sponsors fisherdiscoff.com double g craft jerky pick yourself up a disc and a bag of jerky set yourself up for your weekend rounds and help support the show a little bit. We'll see you guys next week.